Welcome back to In The Spotlight, where we talk about everything that inspires, informs and entertains. My guests this week are Nero Power Couple, Dr. Janendra Ekaniyaki and Dr. Eva Ferradoz. They are respectively a neurosurgeon and a neuroscientist, both holding PhDs in cognitive neuroscience. Dr. Jin is currently a neurosurgical fellow at the Royal Sussex University Hospital, and Dr. Eva is a researcher and lecturer at Reading, at Reading University. I met them around three years ago, and of course was fascinated by the fact that this husband and wife are both in the world of the brain, but both dealing with it from slightly different angles. So I thought it would be great to hear what they have learned so far in their careers about the brain and how these slightly different worlds connect. A big welcome and thank you for coming on the show, Jin and Eva. So maybe, Janendra, if we can start with you, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, and how you got into neuroscience and being a neurosurgeon. Thanks, Liesl. Um, Thanks for having us on the show. Um, so I, I, it's almost like it'd be interesting to tell you how I how I met Eva and work backwards. So I met Eva in UCL when I took time out of my neurosurgical training to do a PhD. Um, and so that sort of was the focus of my career was to combine a hands-on professional job, a, you know, a trade craft, if you will, um, with direct patient contact or direct human contact at a frontier. And so I regard the brain as one of those frontier zones in, in the sort of different aspects of our life, brain space, hence the background. Um, and so, my, if you take it all the way back from that point, when I was a child, I was interested in the brain very early on. And I knew I wanted to do something with the brain, either as a doctor or as a surgeon. And my father was a surgeon and my mother was a doctor, anesthetist. And I knew early on that I wanted to use my hands. And so as I was progressing through school and medical school, the decision was made quite early that I wanted to do surgery. And I was always interested in the brain. And it, it took me by surprise that actually that the decision was going to be neurosurgery because neurosurgery has the sort of kudos and certain sort of um, associations with it. But I never looked at it from that perspective. I looked at it from the perspective I described. Um, and so I, I did neurosurgery, but always with the intention to combine the clinical job with research. And so once I started my neurosurgical training, in, so I started my surgical training in London, my neurosurgical training started in Birmingham in the UK, and then I got a, a Wellcome Trust Fellowship to do a PhD in UCL. Um, and that was combining two things which I'm interested in, functional neuroimaging, which is when you take pictures of the brain as it's working, um, and you try and make sense of what you see. And combining that with an interest in manipulating brain activity. And so I, I had a focused PhD in UCL with a chap called Professor Garrett Rees. Um, massive impact on my life. One of the three most important people in my, my life, not including my parents and my, my wife and kids. Um, and yeah, and, you know, speaking of wife and kids, I guess that's what, that was one of the findings of my PhD was 
a wife and children, you know? Just the other week, I was looking at, you know, when, we, when you do a PhD, you write this little thing at the front, like, which says, thank you to all the people that, blah, blah, blah. you know, you write something, it's like a preface to a book. And I actually wrote that in, in the, in my thesis, I wrote one of the, 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 my, the, my most important finding of my thesis was, you know, like you said that moment was an important one for some people PhDs can be quite horrific for me it was completely life-altering mm. um so yeah that, that that's the short answer to your question you grew up in Australia and you did a lot of your studies and your PhD in Australia, actually. And then how did you end up being in the UK? Did you always be always interested in the brain? Yeah, so my story is less, um, uh, what's the word? I was a, a little bit less kind of career minded and I did a lot of kind of following my nose, I think, with how I got to where I am. Um, so I did, I came from quite a sciencey family, like my family are very sort of science oriented and um, I sort of was always interested in it at school and then I thought, obviously I'll go to university and study um, biology and uh, biochemistry and physiology, which was really interesting. But um, at that stage, I wasn't really doing anything with the brain um, until one day I had a lecturer this was when I was doing my undergraduate studies in Queensland. So we'd been doing a lot of like very cellular geeky stuff, genes, cells, very technical, very interesting. But um, particularly the practical work was quite boring. You'd go into a lab, you'd sort of like squeeze things into pipettes, wait for two hours, come back, have a look. Not very exciting. So I was sort of like, mm, not sure about this as a career. I don't want to hang out in a lab and just wait for things. Um, and I had a lecturer one day and um, he... It turns out he had bipolar disorder, but he's it's fascinating. Right? He rocks into the lecture, a big bearded guy, pretty nutty. And he told us about his theory of the brain, which was um, it's divided into two halves, obviously, but you switch between the halves. So you cycle between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, and you usually spend a couple of minutes on each side. And that kind of has an impact on how you're you know, viewing the world and things like that. Um, the two hemispheres have slightly different kind of um, perspectives in the end. And then he told us you can tell which hemisphere you're in by breathing through your nostrils. So if you hold one nostril and breathe through it um, and then hold the other nostril and breathe through it, you'll find that you're breathing through one nostril more easily than the other at any given oh. time. And that's because, and this is his theory, is that um, the nostril that is on the opposite side to the hemisphere that's on kind of um, dilates the blood vessels a bit. So you're breathing more easily through that nostril um, opposite to the hemisphere that's on. And then after about a minute and a half, you, you'll switch hemispheres and then you'll find that you start breathing through the other nostril more easily. And it's this thing called interhemispheric switching. And it's been seen, actually, it does happen. It's a real thing. But they measure it, for example, um, they've got model animals like in fish. There's a type of zebra fish where they cycle between the hemispheres and everything. But he came up with this grand theory that happens in humans. Um, people with bipolar disorder, they get stuck in one hemisphere longer than the other. Um, their switch is, like, sticky and slow so they don't do this normal cycling. Anyway, to cut a long story short, as an undergraduate who had been doing a lot of like really cellular things, all of a sudden this guy comes in with this mad theory about the brain. And I'm just like, wow, that is so cool. I definitely want to do something with the brain. Oh, um, 
<laughs> it turns out like a lot of people know this guy. He's not alive anymore, but um, he was well known around the world. For, um, he did some really like pioneering, very interesting work, but also he had this kind of side to him that was a little bit loopy as well. Um, yeah, and so after that, I found a PhD for myself looking at the brain um, and looking at what we call working memory, which is also short-term memory and trying to manipulate the brain with some magnetic stimulation. This is where things get more complicated. <laughs> so I did a PhD trying to zap people's brains. And as is traditional in um, science training, once you get a PhD, you then want to go to another lab somewhere and get trained in what's called a postdoctoral sort of fellowship um, before you then go and set your own lab up. So you, do, you almost do these like apprenticeships in different labs. And um, Australia being quite remote to the rest of the world, often people would go and do these sort of postgraduate apprenticeships overseas. So I went to the States, I went to Canada, and then I wound up in London um, at a lab where I was interested in the work they were doing. And then uh, one thing led to another, and I also discovered a husband and children <laughs> at the end of it. You're lucky enough to discover a husband and children. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Um, <laughs> I can just imagine you, 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 know, you probably must have a lot of conversations about it, but also being a part of your work, you know, it's obviously not all you talk about all the time. I'm it's sure. quite a lot of what we talk about, actually. And Is we really? do argue quite a lot, like to the extent yeah. of ruining holidays sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the, I mean, like, I, mean, I, I have to tell you the story, right? So even, even I do, like you alluded to, alluded to it a few times like do you argue do you discuss we do um but we went to vietnam and um for a conference actually and we went to china for a conference and then we thought we'd spend a little bit of time in the surrounding areas so we went to vietnam and we went to halong bay which is yeah. really beautiful lots of islands and we were only going to go there for we we're only going to halong bay for a short trip but overnight i was googling and i found this what looked like a little boat ride. It was a little bit expensive, but then I thought they, these were just tourist prices. So I put this sort of, I think it was quite expensive. It was sort of two, 250 for one night. So I thought, oh, that's expensive, but we're only in Halong Bay for, for, for one day, one night. Let's see what happens. So I paid for it. And then we went from this quite an average hotel. It took us to this very lovely dock. And then we won this beautiful bespoke <laughs> sailing boat just for two three meals with the the guy who's on the boat is also chef coffee cocktails astounding it was so beautiful and it was you know it's very luxurious so anyway halong bay is very famous Liesl, because have you seen avatar yes so in Avatar, you have these hanging islands in the air. Oh, yes, yes. Where they, yeah, where they go to find the, the, the dragons. So Halong Bay looks like that in water. Mm. There are lots of these sort of islands. And so we started discussing what the physical basis of an island is, right? So is an island connected to the yes. earth yeah. or does it float? So we had a, so basically we had this discussion and Eva was very firmly with the idea that an island could never float. Right? Because it doesn't. <laughs> Jesus. So we, we can still argue. So we argued to the point where we were on this amazing, literally six star boat, and we stopped talking to each other for the whole night. 
middle of Vietnam, Halong Bay, we had a philosophical disagreement. Oh my God. So that, that, that captures what, as how serious an argument can be about a, a concept, basically. I thought I'd share that with you. It's a nice one, isn't it? Halong Bay, beautiful boat, no one's talking. One of the problems is that scientists are by nature very um, debatey. So we have a very high threshold for what we accept as truth or evidence. And so often we need people to present us with evidence of something, whatever that is, whatever form it takes, before we accept it, before we believe it. Interesting. This is interesting, actually, just a slight aside. You, my view of scientists is like is a, is like a guy called Marty Serino. He's very famous in the field. He he sort of identified visual cortex as being very detailed and having a map of the world, which is quite specific in its representation of the outside world on the back of your of your of your brain. And then these maps are sort of maintained all the way through the head. So he's very famous with this. It's called written atopic mapping, and he did it at a very high level of fidelity using very nice software. But he's he wears shorts. He's quite a good-looking guy. Wears shorts, suntanned, grey hair, and a ponytail. He looks cool, and you that was my funny. idea. That was my idea of a scientist: open-minded, a little bit of a tree hugger, you know, meditates on the weekend. That was what I thought I was getting <laughs> myself up to when I did a PhD, but. Actually, scientists are really dogmatic. They're not very open-minded. They know what they know. And if you want to convince them to look into something a little bit different, you have to, you've got your work cut out for you. You have to prove it. You have to prove it. Which is a bit odd because I did that was not my that was not my intuitive view of what a scientist would be like. No, what, do you, what, do, you, what do you think a scientist would be like, Lisa? Out of interest. <laughs> Now, if I had, when I was younger, a scientist, the word of a scientist, I had somebody in mind with uh, like a lab, a white lab oh. hat, you know, um, you know, with glasses, gray hair, a little more, more, maybe more the less, you know, the less cool and adventurous, <laughs> like picture you had, Jen. But again, yeah. Eva is not like that at all. So. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's you. a wet lab scientist. Yeah. I don't even have a lab coat. It's very disappointing. No, I mean, one of the nice things about the, the field of science and scientists is that they're really, di I think they're quite diverse. They come from different backgrounds. So there's no stereotypical. You have your classic nerds, for sure, um, along the lines of what people think there are. But then you'll have, it runs the gamut to like, you know, Marty Serino tree hugger. Um, you know, cool. one in between. And it was really cool. And that's what I quite like about it. It feels in some respects like quite a sort of egalitarian field. You can come at it from many angles, but you'll end up being a, you know, one of these irritating scientists who demands evidence at the end of it. <laughs> well, I think one thing I, when I grew up, I, I think I was probably my early teens. I started getting a little bit of fascination about the brain. And I think that's where I am actually quite um, jealous in a sense of what you guys are doing, because I think for me, there was two things about the brain. One was our brain has much more power than what we are actually using it for currently as humans. So these things that we can do that we are not really tapping into, um, like they call the power of the mind. And I don't know if that is true, talking to you guys who know about more. 
but I remember somebody saying you're only using one or two percent of the functionality of your brain really I'd like to slap that person <laughs> um if I may stop you right there so this is one of these um delightful neuro myths we call them there's a little list of them but that always comes number one on our list of things that are completely not true it's okay 10%. yeah the the famous one is you only use 10% of your brain yeah and it's I mean, so it, how it's much, do, you, how much do you think we use? I mean, do you think it's not? Use- it's not even the right way to. So the problem is, it's not even the right way to ask the question. You're not using like bits of your brain, and then other bits of the brain are switched off. The brain is on all of it all the time. It's just uh, fluctuating at different levels. So there's no on or off like situations. It's um, everything is. It's very complicated and very difficult. And I don't think we we don't fully understand it either. So I'm definitely at one extreme of the spectrum. And Eva is, from a philosophical position, she's at the other end of the spectrum. So I'd be prepared to entertain your point, and I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand, but I would would invite you to think about it, as she said, where we may overlap is that it's less about that we only use 10%. It's maybe that some people through training have access to more functionality of their brain so it's a bit like everyone's got a body but athletes train their body to such a significant extent and it might be in a particular way they might learn to throw a javelin or run 100 meters but the body is capable of 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 swimming or throwing a javelin so in the same way the brain can be shaped by the training that you impose upon it so you recently did some research and you did a publication on neurofeedback training. Most people have a behavior or they'll do something. And what's not completely understood is what produces the behavior. So is it the brain? Do you plan? Does, does your brain activation come before or after the behavior or, they, or do they occur concurrently? So that, that question is, is unknown. Although some people have broken that down and broken that down and and found some very interesting things. For example, in the the context of movement, it's possible to have produce an experiment which demonstrates that you may be unaware of a decision to do something physical at the time at which your body has already made the decision to do it. So so that it, it it is, definitely demonstrable the brain activation can precede your awareness of the activation that's going to produce a behavior does that make sense what i just said i think so <laughs> it's like the so, so 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 it's a bit like a computer you type command into the computer and it executes the command yeah right yeah. so in, in in that respect it's very clear you can see the line of causality you type a function in and you get an output but with the brain and and the behavior that humans engage in, it's a little bit more, to what extent are you aware of the thing that you're going to do? So are you fully in control of what you're going to do? Are you absolutely aware of the thing that you are fully in control of? So there are some questions around that. And so what neurofeedback is seeking to do, the work that I did during my PhD, is about shaping the brain activity in order to fix a behavior. Okay. 
So you 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 so someone that has problems with movement, and that problem with movement is linked to a, a, a series of brain areas which are connected up in a in a sort of a loop. What you will do is train one part of that loop to increase the level of activity or to normalize the level of activity in that part of the loop and thereby restore a more normal type of function in the loop or find a different pathway within the loop to bypass the bit that's broken. The neurofeedback thing, I guess the, the, the important thing about neurofeedback is you're training a brain activation in order to produce a behavioral output. But what you're not doing is training a behavior you're training a brain activation. That's the important bit. So, you know, playing tennis and hitting the ball, you're learning to hit the ball in a particular way. That's a behavioral, behaviorally driven task. Similarly, if someone's got an addiction, you might try and break the addiction by giving them aversive, aversive, um, uh, aversive um, stimuli. So if they, if they're like, if they, if they enjoy smoking, you might, Every time they pick up a cigarette, you might show them something disgusting. And you break it by, by introducing a behavioral change. But this is identifying the part of the brain that's involved in brain activation and then giving them a task like controlling a thermometer bar linked to the level of activation in the part of the brain that deals with addiction and get them to drive down the level of activation in the part of the brain that deals with addiction. And then lo and behold, they demonstrate less of the addictive behavior wow. with, without knowing why they're doing it. That's very interesting. So you yeah, spend so a lot of time invested in what you do and how you do that brain training. I mean, I think I read somewhere that you said from just with just even just three days of some training, you already can influence what the outcome is or the behavior is. Following yeah, sure. Yeah. Three days, three hours, even actually, even one day's worth yeah. of training. So how, so how does your 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 world of being a surgeon connects with that? Because that's a very different field as well. Doing research on that, you know, but also being a surgeon and doing actual surgery on the brain. Yeah. So interesting. Again, um, so the surgeons that I grew up with the ones that would have been, would have thought like me, so the ones that taught me, but would be out by about 20 or 30 years, there was no appetite for a surgeon to be a cognitive neuroscientist and a surgeon. There was no appetite for that. Surgeons were surgeons, first, foremost, and last. And so, for example, my first, the first surgeon that trained me in Birmingham was a guy called Carl Meyer. He was a, he's an, he's an Aussie. Australian, actually from New Zealand. And he was like a international level cricketer. He was very erudite, very well read, very well spoken, was very interested in neuroscience. But then because he knew that he would never be accepted for, for being a, effectively someone who's not a surgeon, he completely mastered and chose to do vascular neurosurgery, which is like the most surgical thing you can do which is paradoxically what I'm now interested in. But the, the, the thing is, but now there are people like Ben Rappaport, Eric Ludhart. There's, in this country, there are um, somewhat, there's people like Johnny Hyam who have a much more 
comprehensive and holistic view of the brain as compared to the, the surgeon surgeon of the past. So okay. things are shifting. So, you know, the, the people I just named, some of them are designing brain computer interfaces. Some of them are, are looking at brain scans for, for looking at the way the brain, you know, levels of brain activity related to function. So that type of surgeon is emerging. Actually, that type of surgeon has emerged. Mm. It's just that they're still few and far between, but that that there's a trend in that direction. So being a neurosurgeon, so, so like if you speak to Eva, they're fascinated. Eva's neuroscientist that knows tons about the brain, but they never see the brain. And so they're always fascinated by people that see the brain. And then classically, neurosurgeons are people that touch the brain and don't really understand function in the same way that someone like Eva does. Yeah. But there are more and more in my this generation of neurosurgeons there are people that understand brain function at least as well as a neuroscientist so if somebody comes to you who has a tumor a brain tumor you obviously need to do surgery and try and remove that or reduce that but do most surgeons and i get the feeling that you do but do most surgeons go and say how can I, are they aware of what exactly and where they can cut and remove without touching certain functionality? There's a name for that. The last person I mentioned, a guy called Hugh Defoe, he was probably that he is, he is the generation immediately before me and the first of the cognitive neuroscientist slash neurosurgical um, um, uh, leaders, if you like, or thought leaders. Um, so he was very interested in what you just described, specifically the effect that brain tumors have on brain function and how much you can take away of a brain tumor without disrupting function. So he called that onco, which is cancer, yeah. functional, the onco-functional balance. Okay. And so actually this is, goes back to Eve and I, we, in the middle of my PhD and as I was coming out, we spent a lot of time talking about this and you know i can't i'm quite open-minded about the way things are done but i don't have some of the detail on individual parts of the brain that maybe eva does have so actually between the two of us we came up with this concept of parcelating the brain such that it could be tested relative to the parts of the brain that form a parcel so in terms of preserving function, the, the, there are cardinal, there are some sort of established ways to test function. And the sort of what's regarded as inverted commas, the gold standard is to have someone awake and disrupt function with an electrical stimulation, what's called direct cortical stimulation. Then that works very well for speech. So if you're talking and there's a brain tumor in your speech area, and before you cut it out, you, you take a little pencil probe which is wired up to the mains effectively and delivers a small short electrical current while the pe person who's being operated on speaks, they will stop speaking or stutter. So you will know you that the, something. You've, you've potentially you're in the region of an area which is involved in speech. That is incredibly simplified because the amount of charge you deliver and where in the network you are will influence what happens to that patient. So you have to make sure that the charge is low enough that you can 
So the higher the charge, the more the brain is activated, but also the more volume the brain is activated. Mm -hmm. So you, you don't want to stimulate big chunks of brain because you might be hitting important tissue, which is a couple of centimeters away. You only want it one or two centimeters away. So, so that, that's what they do. They disrupt speech. And that, that sort of approach is, has been there for the last, it was sort of um, pushed by a guy called Ogerman in Seattle um, about 40, 50 years ago now, actually. And, but what we're saying is, well, it's not just, you're more than just speech and movement, aren't you, Lisa, yeah. right? The classical thing for a neurosurgeon is, oh, how's the patient doing? Can they walk? Can they talk? Okay, great. Let's see the yeah, next one. Yes, you might be able to walk and talk, but you might lose something else. Or... Yes. Wow. The aspect of neurosurgeons is that they have this huge power over a person. So, I mean, there's early, not early studies rather, but um, some of the operations they do for people with epilepsy is quite dramatic you know they'll remove I mean there's famous cases of people's um, parts of the brain brain being removed responsible for long-term memory or short-term memory um, and so that would change someone you know dramatically if you lose like your long-term memories or lose the ability to form new memories you become a very different person um, there's a famous case of um, this patient HM he's called and he was stuck essentially you know in the period before his surgery because he could not form new memories at any stage so he was constantly thinking that it was I can't actually remember the details of it this was in the 60s I think when his surgery happened and so for him time essentially stopped then so yeah he's walking and talking and all sorts of things but he's obviously a very different person and so this is what uh, Jen was talking about with um, neurosurgeons becoming more um, awake to the fact that the brain is, as he said, more than just two functions of <laughs> walking and talking. But there's a hell of a lot of grey matter in there and white matter that have important functions that you can't see immediately, you know, uh, yeah. on the operating table. So what does the neurosurgeon do? Well, they have to understand more about the functions of these different brain areas that they're dealing with. And is there more communication now, you would say, in these days between neurosurgeons and neuroscientists? Is that happening? Um, it's definitely know. happening. It's definitely happening, Lisa. I, and I think it's not happening enough. Like, it's, it's being spearheaded by more or less surgeons in the States and in parts of Europe like Germany, and to a lesser extent, the UK. And that's being extremely harsh but also quite true. And I, I think Americans are, they are to be hailed to some extent because their approach is more comprehensive. There's a lot more thought and obviously there's more funding which provides the platform and the luxury of being able to interrogate a problem without having to think about your bottom line. And that's the problem with the UK is that it, it struggles with financial constraints. But um, so, so going back to your point about how things have changed, I think surgeons have spoken more to neuroscientists and there's a better understanding that there are other techniques beyond direct cortical stimulation, which can be used to look at function and could be used to look at function without having the patient awake. Um, could, be, could be done before the patient's put to sleep, like functional MRI, and that could be paired with something else like transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is what Eva does. So 
there's a sort of a move to a multimodal approach, which means multiple different types of scanning and imaging approaches, which look at brain function and putting it all together. And then having this sort of complex map, it's, you know, it's a bit like, have you seen Predator? When the monster looks for, the, for his, he doesn't see with normal eyes, basically. He sees with alien eyes. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he sees, his first overlay is entirely thermal based. So if the bodies are cold, he can't see it. And then he continuously adjusts visual frequencies and it provides him with a slightly different view of the vista in front of them. And that's a little bit like neuroimaging. Each imaging modality provides a little bit of a different view, but more information than looking at one modality by itself. So there's a shift in the field towards multimodality approaches to looking at brain function. And I, I just wanted to say something which is quite topical and super interesting because this onco-functional balance that we talk about, which is yeah, yeah. brain function versus brain, brain tumor removal, the sort of new thing in there is that brain tumors are not just homogenous pieces of nasty jelly that just replicate. It's more than that. They are, they also have a little bit of a network of neural activity. So they, they form connections with the brain and they manipulate brain function to optimize the conditions for their growth. So, so it's quite an it's quite a sinister entity in that respect. I mean, you could write a book about it because Very interesting brain tumors drive brain function in a way that optimizes conditions for its growth. Overall, the whole body there's a, a shift to looking at brain tumors in a more again in a more three dimensional way. And brain tumor, you know tumors all over the body manipulate the surroundings to improve the the growth. Mm. opportunity for it is one way to look at it but what's interesting about brain tumors is it's more than just a chemical thing it seems to have a neural component to it so when people have fits with brain tumors there's recent work to demonstrate that every time they have a fit it actually makes their disease worse it's not just a symptom uh -huh. it has a prognostic effect so if you treat their fits you may indirectly be treating their tumor. Wow. So, so th this is where things get interesting. So it's like, at the moment, there's, a, there's me, a neurosurgeon, and there's Eva, a neuroscientist. But one day, you may be interviewing a third person, which will be a cancer neuroscientist, someone that looks at the neuroscience of cancer. So you've got the normal brain, you've got the guy that cuts out cancer, and then you've got the, the brain but it looks on specifically how cancer influences the brain and yes. what cancer does to the brain to benefit right. cancer yes exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah the um is there something that you know already that you can do to stop and help that that um it doesn't get worse this the bit that we're talking about is quite very close to the cutting edge of the field but they're talking about so brain tumors have a uniformly so Brain tumors that are property of the brain, that's gliomas. Anything more than the ones that you get in, in childhood have uniformly poor prognoses. I mean, at best, it's a seven-year prognosis. At, at worst, it's 12, six to 12 months. And but what, what's interesting is something that's come out in the last couple of years is 
if you take the tumor out and you take as much as you can, which is more than 90%, then you give them chemotherapy and then you give them radiotherapy. So now you're at the maximum sort of standard treatment, nothing standard about it. But if you then put them in a, in a cap for 18 hours a day, which generates, the cap is non-invasive, much like you're wearing headphones, but now it'll be a cap, which gives electric, elect, an electrical field across the brain. You can add three months to their life. Wow. So this, so this is disrupting the, the neuronal activity of the cancer, maybe, but definitely disrupting the structural activity of the cancer. So there's, there's a whole, there's a whole piece about cancer neuroscience, which is emerging and is likely to be a, a big deal in the next 10 years, I'd say. With this company that you co-founded, um, can you tell us a little bit just about what you are working on with that? Because I understand it's almost like, it's like, it's like machines and tools to help with surgeries and even to do real-time scans on a patient while you operate or yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, so the, the whole thing is, and I'm very conscious of this, is that being able to operate on a patient with this multimodal approach and all the yeah. things I told you about, you can't do it in South Africa in a rural community. You can't even do it in the UK in a rural community up north in, in mm -hmm. Inverness. So there's a need to make these approaches and all these technologies you need to parcelate it and put it into the hands of people at the bedside or on the field okay, yeah. the vision of the company is to create intelligent surgical tools which enable you enable the surgeon or the doctor to treat the person wherever they are oh wow so, so if you're so, far away from a big hospital you know where you can do scans and ct scans and everything you yeah. will be able to, these tools will enable you to do it, like you say, even somewhere rural. At the point of care, at the point of care, yeah. yeah fantastic. Wow. That's so that's the, that's the vision statement. I mean, the tools, what we're trying to do is develop a, 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 something that would, you know, whenever you run a company, they ask you to, to look for a vision or to have a vision. Um, and... So I sat down and I thought, what is the thing that I want to do? And I remembered a conversation with a friend of mine a long time ago, which was like, we were watching Star Trek and he said, can you just pick up a torch and shine it into someone's head and see what's inside? Do you think that'll ever be, do you think that'll ever be possible? I remember that question a long, long time ago. And I, I, even though the answer was no, it's not possible. I, I never stopped thinking about it. Wow. Um, and that's what we want. That's what we're trying to do with the technologies and the companies create a handheld imaging tool wow. which gives you a direct line of sight view of what you're looking at how far do you think you are from from succeeding in that I, I think I think time? we have the necessary so it's a long-term game plan I think we're at, we're sort of about 15 percent of the way and wow. so I'd say it's about a 10-year journey for us wow wow oh wow that'd be groundbreaking I really I think that is amazing. I just really, really wish you all the best with that. I can see how passionate you are about it. How, let me ask this question. I think we all know, um, you know, you have short memory, you have long term memory, um, but what is the main things that affects the short memory or the main things you've learned from it? And what can we do to improve our short memory? 
Oh my God, the million dollar, probably a good <laughs> question now, isn't it? Um, so yeah, good question. Short-term memory um, is something that feels very intuitive to everyone, but actually it's really difficult to study. It's really difficult to understand. And my sort of view on it and thinking on it has changed quite a bit since I've started, since I've, you know, sort of started studying it. It used to be um, uh, defined by people studying short-term memory. It's just uh, over the course of a couple of seconds and usually you're given some information that you want to remember over a couple of seconds. You might do something with that information and then you'll um, then spit that information out for whatever purpose you were, were remembering it for. So, like, lab tests of short-term memory are really dry. You get people to, like, remember some numbers for a couple of seconds and then repeat those numbers back or... Uh, reverse the order of the numbers and repeat them out, you know, that kind of thing. And that's still actually used diagnostically. You know, they have a series of tests like this um, when they're trying to um, diagnose someone with memory disorders, you know, like um, dementia and things like that. But it, that's actually quite different to the short-term memory that we experience ourselves out in the real world, as it were. Um, and so one of the challenges of studying human behaviour like short-term memory is to be able to take it into the lab. You can't have the real world in a lab there's too many things that we can't control so when we're trying to look at short-term memory um we try and distill it down to just the the core of it so that we can understand it um, and then build our knowledge from there um so short-term memory i struggle with trying to research it because the short-term memory i do in the lab is not very um uh, similar to the short-term memory, as I said, in the real world. Um, but we have no choice at the moment. So it's a bit of a slow, frustrating process. Um, I feel like we're very much at the beginning. And in fact, it's at one of those, the more we understand or the more we learn, the more complicated we see, you know, uh, how things are. So to me, short-term memory is now not remembering stuff for a couple of seconds. It's actually like this moment-to-moment information processing and it has a bunch of other things happening at the same time um things like you have to pay attention to whatever's going on you've got a task that you're trying to do at the moment whether that is um you know getting your keys to leave the house um or i mean the famous one has been given a phone number but no one has phone numbers anymore to remember <laughs> so whatever you've been you know you're going from task to task or moment to moment tasks you know throughout every day every moment and for that you need some short-term memory you need attention you need um what we call cognitive control which is to remember what the task is and to stay focused on the task and so long-winded answer your question and <laughs> what affects our short-term memory the most um it's distraction is what i think is really one of the biggest factors in affecting whether or not we can remember stuff and do you think well it feels like distraction has just got worse in the world, yeah. you know. I mean, now these days you have everything. You have you have so you have your phone ringing. You can, you know, you, you have your phone with you all the time, which can have a message on your phone. You, you know, you know, you might have children also wanting, you know, attention. You just all all you all of those things in the world, and I just find it actually got worse. And um, have you seen influences on how that? affects people already i mean is there trends that that really affects your short-term memory or not 
always adapted. Yeah, people, I mean, people try to research this stuff, but again, it's really hard because there's these real world things like a phone, having a phone, and then having to try and see how that affects short-term memory. Problem is people use, different people use their phone in different ways. Mm. Not everyone is, you know. They can't generalize it exactly. Yes, it's really, it's hard to research. It's hard basically to find results in the lab um, based on what is really a very variable human behavior. Um, but I think certainly the subjective feeling counts for a lot. So it, I definitely, you feel the pull of the phone, right? It's like something that everyone I think can probably, you know, has experience and attest to a little bit. And it works for very sort of um, what we call, uh, I'm not very good with my psychology. So apologies to the people listening out there who are probably going to freak out when I say, I think it's like operant conditioning. Is it operant conditioning? Like um, the phone is like a little reward center. We love reward, right? Our brain seeks basically positive feedback. The phone has hijacked um, what is uh usually a fa- it's, it's a fairly robust kind of um, behavior for us you do something you get a reward that's a good thing and so you'll do it again and usually it's associated with a positive um a positive outcome for you you find some food it's tasty bing reward whatever um but the phone is it's kind of hijacked it so you look at a message you've got a message bing reward <laughs> Uh, so then you'll keep looking at your phone going, oh, another message. Or, you know, you keep seeking this reward. So never thought of it that way, but yeah, that's true. Yeah. And so that's a very, um, for us, this is, a, as I said, it's a very hard-coded behavioral, um, uh, I'm going to use the wrong word, hard-coded like behavioral trait, hard-coded behavior mm-hmm. uh, is this reward-seeking. And so that's why it works that's why the phone works so well as uh being there constantly with us and effectively distracting us uh in this way what can we do in general to improve Uh, improve memory is there anything that we can really do um uh currently i don't think so (laughs) i'm so sorry um it's it's um, what you have to do is you have to step up a level from, so there's a lot of stuff out there in the world about brain training. Like you can get apps for it and pay money for it and things like that. And they give you like, you know, little activities to do on your phone, little games to, uh, you know, improve ultimately that they advertise it by improving your memory. Um, and they just don't work, um, because you can't, um, it's like um, using the analogy of the gym again, which we've used. If you exercise a muscle, that particular muscle will get bigger, but it's not like the rest of your muscles are going to get bigger. So doing these brain trainings or trying to improve just your short-term memory or an aspect of your short-term memory might improve that particular thing, but it's not going to have this profound effect on the rest of your short-term memory. And you have to then step up a level and change the strategy with which you remember things. Um, so one thing is like you have to remember to remember, which is really stupid. <laughs> like no one remembers to remember. So one of the things is just to try and resist distraction, try and stay focused on a task. If you find that you're in a situation um, where you need to focus on something, there are then ways to train your focus better. Like, for example, meditation is is a famous one. Mm. Focus on the thing that you're doing at the time. Ignore what is happening in the outside world. So coming at it from a more meta level like that seems to 
seems to be more beneficial than actually trying to remember more stuff. Interesting. And what are you doing with multimodal imaging techniques? And what you reaches, obviously. So that's what you do in the labs, in the lab. Um... Oh, yeah, gosh, what do I do in the lab? Um, I am interested in how the brain does short-term memory. Like, where is it happening in the brain? How are brain regions wow. communicating? In particular, when you are getting distracted, how is the brain trying to work against that? Um, and so to do that, I do, um, as Jen was saying, I look at the brain from different, uh, in different ways using different techniques. So I scan people's brains using functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. So probably lots of people know about having an MRI. You get thrown into a tube that makes a loud noise. And we can get people to do our short-term memory tasks in the scanner. And so we can see brain regions activate and we can um, also uh, do measures to see how they communicate with each other. And so you can draw like a network of brain regions that, okay, for example, I'm getting someone to remember stuff and then I'm distracting them. I can see that one particular brain region becomes more active at the front of the head. Um, and it seems to be communicating with the regions at the back, remembering stuff, trying to prevent irrelevant information from coming in. So you are, you are really tracking where things happen. Yeah. Right as well. And we so what was the multimodal bit? You didn't mm -hmm. mention <laughs> <laughs> the I do more stuff to the brain as well. So doing um, functional magnetic resonance imaging gives you, you know, these pictures of the brain and how the brain's working, but it, it doesn't tell you with certainty what these regions are doing. We call it a correlational method. So when I'm getting someone to do a short-term memory task in the scanner, I'm seeing brain regions activate and I sort of try and put two and two together. Oh, at this time I was making them do a short-term memory task with distraction. These brain regions have activated. Therefore, these must be, you know, important. But actually um, we can't say for certain. It's just that these two things coincided with each other, but I need to add on some additional techniques to be able to say with certainty to provide me with causal evidence, as we call it, um, that indeed these brain regions are doing what I think they're doing. So, for example, I disrupt brain regions using, and this is where things get really weird, um, uh, using something called transcranial magnetic stimulation. So wow. if I, I sort of perturb a brain region that I think is important um, while someone's doing a short-term memory task, if they get worse at the short-term memory task when I've perturbed that brain region, I can say, oh, well, that brain region is now necessary. I put my magnetic stimulator on when, and it, it basically interferes with the otherwise normal functioning. If this brain region wasn't important, then my magnetic stimulation wouldn't be doing anything. So therefore I can conclude that, yep, this brain region is really important. It's necessary in fact. So I do the two things at once in the scanner. So I'm scanning people yeah. And then I'm also applying this disruptive brain stimulation at the same time so that I can see the effects sort of almost um, in real time. So you're scanning them and then? And then I'm zapping them, just, <laughs> which is what we call it, so that I can see the effects of my disruption uh, across the oh, whole wow. brain. So if I knock out a brain region, for example, I can see, oh, my goodness, these other brain regions are affected as well. The information that we're trying to remember has disappeared, something like that. Therefore, I get a much broader picture of, uh, you know, um, what's happening during short-term memory while people are being distracted, for example. Wow. 
it's also amazing <laughs> groundbreaking work that is so important and influential um if i can ask you guys the last question you know moving towards the end of our conversation um what is the what is the legacy that you both want to leave what is the the aim and almost you know what is what is the I say not the problem or the mission that you have that you would want to say you know this is what I've accomplished this is what I've learned this is what I've given humanity to go forward to and Ava yeah. oh it's like a mic drop question isn't it um <laughs> <laughs> that's such a good question gosh um Wow. When I started doing science, like wanting to pursue a career in science, it's because I wanted to make a contribution to our understanding of the brain. Um, and I'd still like to do that. Um, I realise it's going to be a small contribution because science is extremely incremental. Very, We add tiny bits of evidence to what is a really a massive picture at the end of it. So I'd like to have made a contribution. I have toned things down in the sense that I'm not going to be, you know, um, changing the way the world thinks about the brain, but I'd like to think I've made a positive contribution in some way to our understanding. And that's the fun part of being a human, I reckon, is our pursuit of understanding, our, you know, this, this idea that we really want to know things. So I'd like to help us to know things. That's a great answer. <laughs> now it's your turn, Jen. Come yeah. on. <laughs> the thing is, I don't, I'm not like Eva. So, so whereas Eva's very pragmatic in, and I'm not pragmatic in my um, open-mindedness, on this side, I, I kind of, it's important for me to leave something that's going to outlast me. Um, and I want it to be something, if I could, then I'd want it to be something that changes the way things are done. And um, and so, you know, that's what founding the company was all about, actually. Mm -hmm. it, it, a company provides you with agility and a platform to do things your way um, rather than be dictated to. So what do I want? I would like to perform neurosurgery on patients that need it on a weekly basis and, and improve their lives or stop them getting worse. Um, and then my legacy, I would like to actually deliver a handheld imaging tool, a bit like an MRI tool, mm -hmm. which will shift the way we do things out of the hospital into the sort of field so that people in Inverness and Zambia and South Africa get the same care that someone in UCL and New York does. That's what I want. That's amazing. It's not, yeah, it's amazing if we can deliver it, I guess. But that's yeah, for the whole pragmatic guy, that's pretty pragmatic. What I meant is exactly that's what I meant. It's just, it's also about. You know, my son. If you ask Bodhi, what does he want? You, you know, he might want to go to space. Is it achievable? Maybe. Can he do it? Yes, with a lot of hard work and a hell of a lot of luck. And I think it's a bit like that. What I've stated to you is what I want to do it requires quite a lot of luck. It does, but I think I've also learned in the last few years a lot about, you know, you have to have a vision, you have to have a dream, and you 
you know, you, if you have that dream and you, you focus on it, yes, there's a lot of things in the universe that needs to conspire. But if you have that vision, you know, things can conspire to eventually lead up to that. If you don't have the vision, then I think things just happen. So have the vision, yeah. do what you want. And I believe you might just get lucky, you know, things might just work out that way. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I said this on another podcast, but there's a Red Indian saying, <clears throat> which is the man who has a vision is it must be like the eagle that follows the deepest blue in the sky and i think that for me is um, captures what having a vision is about it's it's unattainable but if you see it you have to pursue it at the expense and at the extent of everything else so i, I think that i mean obviously family and kids and all of that come into that mm. but um I guess, yeah, there's a whole conversation there about combining your vision with reality. No, exactly. <laughs> but I think if I can just say, I think many times we, we think we still have so much that we want to achieve, maybe, you know, having that vision, but we also have to look and sometimes give ourselves a bit of credit of what you've already done. And I think mm. if I look at the two of you, you've already done such a lot with, with the research and the work that you have been doing and are doing and the changes you are making and I think you can be very proud of that um I will put your um the company that you've co-founded um Jen also the the in the in the podcast notes that people um um do you have a website already for that yes it's www.questme.com okay quest with a z q-u-e-z yeah so people can go and check that out. And I will also put that in the show notes, as I say. Um, yeah, there's so, like, there's so much we, you know, more to talk about, you know, in this, in this field. Um, and um, I really appreciate your time because I know it is even more we can talk about. Um, I think what people need to do is like, um, Eva, I know you have conferences and, and stuff. They must just go to your conferences. They can see you speak <laughs> about it and they can go online, you know, and, and go and look at both of the publications that both of you have done, you know, for your research and, and research and work already. Um, but yeah, um, thank you so much for your time. And um, I really hope that in a few years, you know, we can maybe have another one of these and then, you know, talk about, <laughs> talk about what you've achieved, you know, and what you've done, because I know there's going to be so much. Oh, my goodness. We've got a deadline now. No problem. Thank you, Lee. Well, that was really, um, that was also very enlightening as well for me I thought it was quite it's always interesting to take a step back and actually listen to what my husband is saying <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much guys and oh, I will you. see you really soon again and good luck with all the wonderful work you are doing thank Thanks, you Lisa. bye bye, bye. bye. <laughs>